Welcome to ContenderCast, a global leadership and consumer industries entrepreneurship podcast centered on shining a light on bright ideas. And now, here's your host, Justin Hahnemann. Thanks for listening, thanks for tuning in, thanks for downloading. It's Justin Hahnemann on the ContenderCast for shining a light on bright ideas. Today, we're in the entertainment space, and you guys are going to love this company, Hush Concerts, and what they're doing in this space is just incredible. And on the podcast today is my new friend, Robbie Kowal. He is the CEO and co-founder of Hush Concerts. And Robbie, it's so great having you on the podcast, man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is so great having you here. And uh, it's been so fun for me to learn about your business. Quite frankly, I've never been to a... A silent disco or one of your concerts, and I can't wait. I, I think our audience is like, "What? I gotta! I can't wait to hear about this." So, um, let's do this. Let's start with a little bit of your background. Uh, I saw you had your you got your degree in history, but here you are in the entertainment world. So, how did this all come about? And talk a little bit about your path. Sure. Uh, well, I think like a lot of people who study in New Orleans, you get uh, you get a degree in whatever you get, and you get a <laughs> master's life from the city of New Orleans, and uh, and the the Tulane experience sent me into a, uh, a deep, deep respect and love of music, specifically New Orleans music, but I really never thought I'd do anything with it. When I left college, I went to work as a, uh, I went to work for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Department of Public Health as the health inspector. <laughs> what? And, but, yeah, <laughs> That's it's crazy. crazy. But as, as a history student, I, it really, it really lit my, um, my desire to be a writer. Um, and so I, I saved up a bunch of money and uh, set off to Greece um, to live there and research and write a historical novel. What? Of all things. I was going to write a historical novel about um, the uh, fall of the Minoan civilization, kind of, you know, uh, from the perspective of the characters who were there when the, when the volcano went up and the tidal wave hit and all that stuff, kind of like that movie Pompeii, but, you yeah. know, uh, essentially, hopefully a better move, better oh than that movie. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. Okay, so you're going over there to write a novel, and then? I'm living in Santorini. Beautiful. I've heard it's beautiful. I've still haven't been there Amazing, yet, amazing place. And I, I go to try and get a bartending job so I can stay over there longer because I've been bartending in New Orleans, and it's a great way to save money. And uh, <laughs> long story short, the owner, there was one bar in the entire island that was willing to hire me because the owner was American. And sure. I was, uh, you know, I was illegal. I was working illegal, but he didn't want to hire me as a bartender. He didn't have work yet, but he, he did need me to fill in as a DJ for a couple of weeks while his DJ went out and got married. Um, during that time, he decided that he could pay me less. I drank way less and <laughs> cost him no money. So, and he liked my music because I was American. I, I saw eye to eye with him on all the funky stuff. And so he basically picked a fight with this like longtime experienced, you know, deeply connected DJ, fired him and hired me. Right. And, you know, things were off from there. It got very weird that summer with the other guy. There was a lot of drama with him between the owner and him that I tried to stay out of. But um, I will say this, someone actually had to die for me to keep that job. Oh um, I wasn't involved. Nobody was murdered. It was a car accident. But there was this whole incident. And had that person not died in that car accident, which was tragic, I would have lost the job and I wouldn't be here right now. So whenever I look back at how this all started, I always think wow. like, maybe it was meant to be. Like sure. maybe somebody wanted me to be doing this. Um, 
possibly. So anyway, so I, I become a DJ for, and, and in the summer seasons back then you work every single night for five hours. You are the guy at that place. Now, did you know how to DJ like, or no, was it, you were just figuring it out? No, I, I was, and I was terrible and they had no, they had really poor equipment where they oh. had a tape deck, a record player and an old school CD player. Oh. And, and I was using their music. I had no music. I wrote my mother a letter and asked her to send me a bunch of CDs. My mother being the saint that she was went out and did it. I paid her back when I got home, but you know, that's basically what happened. I had to spend, you know, five hours a night for around, I would say about four or five, six months in a row, every single night playing with one CDJ, one tape deck and one record player. And there may be a hundred pieces of music to, to work with. So I had to play basically the same exact music every single night in different orders <laughs> to make it for, make it more of a variety. <laughs> super challenging, but the upshot of it was I essentially had an experience that most DJs don't have, which is in the in the guitar sense they call it woodshedding, right? So you know the old guitar players, Dwayne Allman goes out in the woodshed for six months, does nothing but play guitar, comes right. back and he knows what he's doing, and that's Got by it. the time I was done with that, I could DJ. Um, and I had a vision of what I wanted to do with it, which most people are never given the time and space to, um, to explore their passions like that. No, you're, that's so so true. I was very lucky. I didn't ever end up writing that book though. I was going to say, did you even start it or was it just the the idea and you didn't really get to it? (laughs) I had pages and pages of notes and, uh, I turned a lot of it into a, uh, a book of poetry, which I did publish. Oh, wow. Um, but a uh, book of long form poetry based on the experience, which I did publish. But uh, no, this historical novel is very much gone. Wow. Well, and then so so how did you come back from how did you make the move back from Greece and then get sure. into you know this whole entrepreneurship space? Well, through a few twists and turns um, after getting back to um, the States, I ended up in San Francisco looking for writing work. I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I wanted to be a stringer. I wanted to work my way up through that. And I wanted to be involved in San Francisco's literary scene, which was just absolutely vibrant at the time, including things like slam poetry. And, um, and you know, obviously the, the last of the beats were still here. Ferlinghetti was still here. Um, all these amazing writers. And so I got very deep into that. I started working as a journalist um, for various different websites, et cetera. And, you know, the only ones that would hire me at the time, they were sending me out to string on, on sports. So I was like covering the A's and covering the Niners. And I got to interview Ricky Henderson and Art Howe and all this cool stuff. But um, they also were sending me on music stuff. Hmm. And I just somehow or another got a DJ gig playing once a month on Wednesdays at this little dive bar in the, in the hate which is kind of famous now. It's called Nikki's Barbecue. It's it's not really the same place anymore, but it was a famous place for launching a lot of like very deep music scenes. So that's sure. where like San Francisco's Grateful Dead night was. The best reggae night in the city was there. The best world music, Chebby Stavaz world music night was there. And they gave me Wednesdays, eventually Thursdays. And I started this thing called What the Funk, which was this <laughs> super, it. super geeked out, deep dive funk thing. Every week was a different deep dive into a different uh, funk musician. It wasn't like wow. I wasn't playing hits. I was playing like Tonight is All Betty Wright, for instance, or Tonight is All Maceo Parker. Got it. And it was super challenging. And what, what, what happened then, and this is, this is really important, 
was that because it was so deep, people would come in, they'd still want to hear Brickhouse all night. <laughs> right. So <laughs> I decided I was going to put my writing skills to use, and I created this newsletter. It was like a newspaper that I'd put on the bar, um, and it would say, here's what we're doing tonight, and here's why Betty Wright's important, right? Or here's why Maceo's important. Here's what she did. And I put a little calendar on the top right. Here's the upcoming funk shows. Now, this is 1997. <laughs> Right? right. There's very little internet. There's very little anything. Yeah, it's just getting started then. Yes. Yeah, so I'll go through the pink pages and the weekly and all these things to get all the funk shows. I compile them. Well, pretty soon I realized that people were really liking it. And um, but if they didn't know what what was going on, why would they come out? So right. I started emailing it out. I put out a little sign up list, started emailing it out. And within about six months, I had like three or four thousand people on this email list. And um, they were all sharing it because it was the only way they could get the um, they could get the info about when the funk shows were coming. So now the promoters started hitting me up about, hey, can you put my show in there? Hey, can you put my show in there? And I started offering my services to them. I said, hey, by the way, on that show, I'll play your set breaks and open up for free if I can get a ticket. Wow, and so got it. For years, so from that point on, I started doing a lot of that. And eventually, even like festival promoters started booking me. High Sierra was one of the first. Um, Burkfest on the East Coast was one of the was an early one. And don't forget, at that point, like DJs didn't play rock festivals then. Like, right, totally. None of them did. So I'm getting booked for these these huge festivals, and they're basically booking me because I'm the guy who plays like funk music and loves live music and the jam heads like what I do. And I could play for the Grateful <laughs> Dead people and the fish people and all this stuff that has nothing to do with like the vast majority of what DJing is about these days. Totally. Um, but it got me booked at Bonnaroo. It got me booked at, wow. at Vibes, all these amazing places. And so pretty soon I had like, I had a rep, I had a name, I had an agent, I had a manager, all this crazy stuff. Um, which I deserve very little of, but I happy <laughs> well, that's to, part of the happy, deal, right? <laughs> yeah, happy to enjoy the opportunity. Totally. Um, it wasn't until maybe five years later when, like, by my own standards, I felt like I was even a, a decent technician as a DJ. It took me many years <laughs> nice. of doing it before I felt like I was good at it. Um, wow. And then to close, I guess to close the loop, one of the promoters in San Francisco was hiring me. It was a guy who was producing New Orleans shows. His name's John Miles. And John uh, started booking me to DJ these, like, uh, basically New Orleans funk shows that he was booking. And eventually I said, hey, John, I feel like a lot of the people are coming because I'm doing it. So do you think maybe I could be your partner on these? And he said, well, let's, let's look at it. And we started partnering on the shows. I put up a little of my own money. I started learning how to do, be a promoter. And over time, uh, John and my relationship grew to where we were essentially, you know, uh, this, you know, the classic buddy sidekick movie, um, and, uh, best friends wow. and, and business partners. We launched sunset promotions. We started the San Francisco funk festival in 2000 and, um, sorry, my cat is, Hey, that's funk. okay. My apologies. <laughs> I love it. Um, so we launched funk fest in 2000 and that's a you wild know, cat too, by the way, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Essentially, sorry. Let me grab him and start petting him so he shuts up. Um, <laughs> That's the best part about 
interviews, man. And you never know. Yeah. You know, when you talk to people, they're all over, and everyone's working at home or an office, and even an office sometimes they got pets. So, anyway, so go ahead. <laughs> no problem. It. My my three year old will probably jump in here in no, a minute. Perfect. Um, <laughs> on that note, so John and I launched a company. We launched SF Funk Fest. We we start. We we focus it on. How do we make a home for New Orleans music in San Francisco, which eventually sure. evolves into funk and soul? And then, you know, John was really into Latin music and Brazilian music, so we did a lot of that stuff. We uh, produced a North Beach Jazz Festival and um, and Fog Fest and all these other festivals that were like, you know, back when you could throw an independent free event right. uh, with not much cost, just run by sponsors. And you know, we did a lot of amazing things in those years. Wow. And then. Um, and that's eventually led to the silent disco thing coming into it. That's so crazy. So what a cool story. And um, it's just, you know, everyone's got a story and you, you never know where life's going to take you. And I mean, you didn't even know you'd be a DJ when you got out of college and here you are um, doing DJ. And then and now you own, you own and are leading this amazing business. So, um, all right. So Hush Concerts. Um, You've been doing this now for more than five years and, and growing sure. this brand. Talk, what is a silent disco? Okay, so I, I mentioned that at the time I was getting booked to DJ these events and Bonnaroo was instrumental in me having a life and a career and all those things. The guys at Bonnaroo, for some reason, loved me, took care of me. <laughs> That's awesome. And I was there. I played the video arcade every year. And then one year, they and this is when, you know, this is when they didn't have DJ. There were several years at Bonnaroo. I was the only DJ at that festival, which is crazy to think of today. Um, and uh, one year they said, hey, we have this new thing we're trying. We brought over from Europe. This is 2005. They call it Silent Disco. And I was like, okay, cool. What is it? Yeah, people play. You play music and people listen on headphones. So I was like, that sounds terrible. Right. Do I get monitors? <laughs> no, you don't get monitors. I said, no, I'm out. And they're like, well, then we'll find somebody else and you can stay home this year. And I was like, oh, oh. okay. I'm you know, <laughs> no. All right. Cool, I'm in. Mm -hmm. So we did it. And in that first, I played three times that first year. I guess that makes me the first person to play a silent disco in the US. And, uh, and you know, the, the headphones were really low rent. It was really hard to hear anything. But immediately I was struck by the, um, the power of what this new paradigm could do. Because at the same time I was DJing at Bonnaroo, we were in the midst of this huge battle with the city of San Francisco over North Beach Jazz Festival, sure. where a group of angry neighbors had <laughs> uh, basically decided to shut us down. And they had basically turned our music into noise, our noise into nuisance, and essentially tried to get our events shut down. And a light bulb went off in my head that, hey, here's a way that we can um, help promoters like us and people who want to put on events have events without worrying about waking up the neighbors. Sure. And it took a few years uh, for me to get my hands on enough headphones to do it. <laughs> I ended up, I produced a tour where we did like 15 states and 23 shows or something. It was 2008 or 2006, I can't remember. But we did a bunch of shows and like half of them would be empty and half of them, people had been to Bonnaroo and they'd be like, this is the coolest thing ever. So it took a, <laughs> took a while for us to really solidify actually doing this we were still doing actual live concerts and then we started bringing the headphones into it and doing headphone concerts as well um the first big san francisco one was on ocean beach we couldn't even announce the headliner because we had such a small capacity 
from the city, but we actually had this guy Tipper who now plays like for 10,000 people and we couldn't even put his name on the flyer, but you know, it was (laughs) the first talent disco in San Francisco was with Tipper, believe it or not. So, um, and so so everyone's got headphones and they're listening to all, are they all hearing the same music? And then just, yeah. How does like logistically, are they just, it's just, there's no noise because they're hearing it all in the headphones, right? And enjoying the music, dancing, being crazy, et cetera. Yeah. The, I mean, the basic way to the basic way to think of it is take your loudspeakers, throw them out, and replace them with headphones for everybody. Got it. Right. So you you can still have the same thing going on on stage, whether it be a DJ or a band or a conference speaker, right? Or a silent or conferences. Whatever. This is so crazy. I see it on oh, your website. Yeah. How does that work? <laughs> it's it's amazing. It's amazing. But the 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 really cool thing is because you have multiple channels, you can change channels on the on the headphones so now you could actually have two djs playing at once or three or in our case with our with our our headsets 10 or in the conference space we can go into a say a conference center and instead of you having to have like you know 10 ballrooms for every breakout session like one for each breakout session now you can turn those 10 ballrooms with just some pipe and drape into 30 breakout sessions and Got it. Wow. with our selling conference headphones, which go up to 20 channels, we've done as many as 54 channels at, at Oracle Open World last year. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it yeah, was a monster it was conference. A, yeah. I mean, it's it, the, the possibilities with this have been incredible. And all that it's required of us is to learn, you know, because it's a new tech, we have to hack all the operational stuff as we go sure. and make mistakes and learn from them and get it right the next time. But um, Silent Disco obviously became a huge part of our business. Now, why Silent Disco is wonderful, at least from a, you know, a music listening perspective, right? Sure. Because you can say, hey, there's no subs, there's no loudspeakers, there's no right. sound system. Where's the, the bass rattling you in the, anyway, you know. Right, you know, absolutely. And a lot of people's initial uh, feedback before they tried it was like that. But what happens is inevitably when they put the headphones on, they start to smile and love it because... First of all, you're hearing the clearest audio signal you're going to hear. It's exactly what the DJ's playing or hearing or the band's playing. You're hearing what's called, you know, the soundboard feed of the show. Absolutely. Direct to your ears. It sounds just as good 100 feet away or right over there to the left or right over to the right. And if you don't like it, you can turn it. If if it's too loud, you turn it down. It's not loud enough, you turn it up. If you don't like it, you can change the channel. And then there's that guy on that channel or that girl on that channel. And um, so it, it gives people two things that they don't really get at shows anymore, choice and immersion, right? You, you, when you go to a concert these days, everybody's yapping and they're on their cell phones and totally. they're all, you know, I go to the show to hear the band. I don't go to hear you singing the band. Well, Silent Disco throws that all out the window. You're, you're getting a really unique, wonderful entertainment experience. It's like nothing you've ever done. And I've got this video of these people coming in at Bottle Rock Festival where every single person put the headphones on and smiled. And it goes on <laughs> for like awesome. 10 minutes. And it's just wonderful. So, dude, I mean, the- I'm guessing during COVID, you know, there's so many of these drive in concerts and people needing to be not up on the stage, slammed against each other. Which I, I can't wait till that day comes back, obviously. But um, I mean, it seems like that would be a perfect opportunity for you guys. Well, we have had some huge opportunities with COVID, but the headphone side of it, as far as headphone concerts, not so much because 
the idea we're trying, you know, what you what you tr- have to be careful with the COVID is having any object change hands. Oh, uh, got it. Right. Not so past it, so we have talked to a dozens of clients about how to do, you know, how to use the headphones. But most of them feel like, well, I don't want people handed something no matter what we do. Right. But um, there are a ton of people that have been renting the headphones for their own home events and backyard barbecues and stuff like that because everybody's stuck at home, right? Um, And um, a lot of our corporate clients, specifically in the fitness space, have been doing a lot of moving their indoor studios into outdoor classes. Sure. And they need the headphones there. So this past year, we have uh, built a very, uh, I can't even say like, it's been a remarkable business uh specifically with the company soul cycle oh, where yeah, they've been of course. Moving, great brand they've been moving their their studios outdoors and spacing out the bikes and we have been in as many as 35 of their venues and uh monthly it's just been going on and wow. on and on and they're amazing company terrific people they're so um creative and um they're just, it's been an incredible thing for us to work with them, but there also have been a ton of other companies that have asked for us to find little solutions like these to how they can, you know, how they can navigate this crazy business environment. Wow. That's amazing. Now, so what are, what are the keys for your growth over the next six to 12 months? Like as you look out in, in the future, whether it be <laughs> during COVID or not, um, what's your take on that? Well, in the last two years, my company has evolved tremendously. So from 18, 19, most of our evolution was in trying to focus our efforts on the corporate space, on corporate events, corporate parties, conferences, and festivals, right? Sure. Going from where we had been more of a concert promoter, a promoter of record, to more of a, a, a production and services vendor. 2019 was the culmination of that. We had our best year ever, and we made tremendous strides in accomplishing those goals. And then 2020 hit, and all of that, all the conferences and all the festivals and all of that stuff went out the window. So we had to figure out what to do this year. And obviously, the fitness thing came along. We also have done a ton of drive-in work um, where we're doing FM services because we've had to learn how to use radio for events. We've been doing it for 15 years. Radio is a really tricky, specific, um, uh, how to put it, um, expertise-intensive type of production. Sure. So we've been able to apply that expertise to drive-ins. We just produced a 10-show drive-in concert series um, at Burlingame where we had artists as big as like Diplo and Pink Martini and Mark Rebier and Burt Kreischer, the comedian. Oh, yeah, shows. of course. <laughs> It was was hugely risky and very scary, but very successful. It went really well. Wow. And then, you know, now this year's over, right? And we're still doing the fitness stuff, but COVID's theoretically coming to an end. And the question question was what next, right? Right, of course. Um, And the answer is I'm not really sure. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. So the first thing, the first thing we've done um, is that, and this is, this will be, this won't be new. This, this is not public knowledge today on December 1st, but by the time this thing runs, sure. um, we'll have released the fact that, um, this past year was so good for us, strangely enough that, um, I was able to pay off all the company's debt or most of it and buy out, uh, John after 20 years of working together, he wanted wow. to move on 
started a cannabis company. God bless him. <laughs> nice. looks like California Craft CBD. They're doing an amazing job. And he wanted to focus on it. He asked me to, to find him a way out of the company. And um, we did so well that we we're able to, to take care of him. And he's moving on. And so now it's essentially my company and my partner, Judy Friedman, um, who's our finance partner, who's been instrumental to our growth. Um, so that is a big difference. So now I guess, you know, whereas in the past, it was always a conversation between me and John and our amazing, our amazing, very small family team. Sure. Um, you know, where are we going? What do you guys think? A lot of it's on my shoulders now. What Got am it. I going to do? What are we going to do? Um, I think the first thing, the first thing you want to do is take stock, right? So the next two months, next month to two is about looking at what we did this year and what's going to continue from that. But then also really looking back at 18 and 19 and what worked then and what of that applies to a post-COVID entertainment landscape and what doesn't. Sure. And really refining, being really careful these days about refining that vision and only going after the things you know are going to work. Wow. Um, you know, this past year really was about experiment, experiment, pivot and survive. Right. Absolutely. And we were in a position to do that because we're small and we've always been really creative. We've always been, you know, dancing around the live nations and the AGs of the world. Right. We've always been in competition with these huge mammoth publicly funded companies so we've had to learn to be creative and experimental to survive. Um, so this year we, you know, we had what we needed to, to, to survive, but even with that, I won't, I won't like, you know, I won't bullshit anybody. We're very lucky. Like sure. we had a great year, but a lot of that was due to, you know, a few, a few very select um, services clients and, um, and they, you know, they enabled us to, to thrive this year and what otherwise would have been a very lean 2020. Uh, talk a little bit about your, um, like, you know, you've had some, a couple years now and, and I always like to have our, our, um, entrepreneurs share some of their lessons learned, but share two or three of yours from growing this business and even taking it and, you know, kind of to the next level. Well, I get asked this question a lot because there are a lot of people who want to get into the music business because it seems like so much fun, right? But, <laughs> right. Um, but I'll, try to, I'll try to make the answers a little bit more general. Um, there's, there's a couple, couple kind of basic, um, basic axioms that we've learned to live by over many years of making bad mistakes. The first is do the math, right? Before you make a decision, Trust your gut, but do the damn math. And this is something that, you know, the creative type entrepreneurs like myself probably struggle with. You know, hey, I want to be a promoter. Before you even put out that first offer or do that first show, do the math. Sure. And if you can afford to lose all of it, don't do the show. You know, before. <laughs> right. And, and how many people it seems don't so do that? simple. <laughs> well, there's no barrier for entry in my business. You want to be a promoter, you throw a party. You don't have to go to college for it. You don't have to, um, uh, you don't have to sit at a desk for 10 years or go to law school. You want to be a promoter, you throw a party. So there's no barrier for entry, sure. but there's also nowhere for people to really learn and, and make those mistakes without really getting hurt. Got it. So do the math, right? Excel is your friend. Google <laughs> Sheets is your friend. Figure out what things really cost and, and be really conservative with it before you make a decision. Second thing 
is um, there's, a, there's someone for that. And that's the other axiom. Or we used to say there's a guy for that. Now we, th- now we say there's someone for that. And what it means is, as an entrepreneur, you are, um, there's an intention in some of us or an instinct in some of us to want to learn how to do everything for ourselves, right? Well, I can do the accounting. Just of give me course. a couple months to figure out how to do it, right? <laughs> right? In my case, it was, we couldn't afford a graphic designer. So I did the graphic design. And a lot of our posters back then really, I mean, you look at them today, they look terrible, right? Sure. Um, we, you know, so and, do it your uh, best at, I think is what you're trying to say. Yeah. So, so you're actually better off finding someone to work with you or to help you. There's expertise all around you and you don't always have to pay for it, but there is someone better than you at pretty much everything. Your job <laughs> as, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO is to build that team and manage it right? And decide which things are better for you to do and which things are better for those other people to do. But don't forget, there's a guy for that. By the way, there's probably a guy to run your company for you, right? (laughs) Most companies, after they go to a certain point, they hire a CEO. Um, We're not quite there yet, but I I wouldn't be against it if I could find somebody, you know, better. I I think that's really important. Um, The third thing, and, and we have a list of company intentions that we came up with a couple of years ago when we we're trying to grow, what are we going to stand for? What, what are mm, important that. things that were really important to us? And the number one thing was service. And this is something people don't really think about, but we has been, you know, essential in our DNA. Everyone who's worked in our company or we, or, or has been hired by us uh, has to have service industry experience. They have to have waited tables or bartended, or barbacked, or worked as a chef. We we think it's crucial that people learn that attitude of um, what it takes to make your money one dollar at a time, mm-hmm. like a bartender does. Love that. Right, and and that means that means uh, not just in terms of how you treat your customers, but also how you organize your time. Right, when you're a bartender, you have to think. 10 steps ahead and you have to make the the fewest number of actions to get a drink into somebody's hands because somebody else is waiting. This sort of organization of your mind and of your business and how to treat customers is inherent in the service industry. And we've tried to bring that into our production services business, into our equipment vendor business, into how we talk to every client, um, to every potential customer, to how we deal with our, and also really important, how we deal with each other, right? So we we have this kind of thing that we've tried to do. It's like, what can I do for you? You know, somebody calls me, even that I work with, how can I help you? What can I do for you? If When we start treating each other that way as, as coworkers, everything gets so much easier and better. It becomes, we become a, no, more than a team, we become a family. and. It's one of the things that's enabled us to survive COVID. Like my, our crew has hung so damn tough through this horrible year when like people really did, like we all took pay cuts. We all, um, many of us didn't get paid for certain months and like, including me. And like, um, it it came, there's a selflessness that comes from that idea of service. And if you can apply it to your whole organization, you're going to be better for it. Um, a, a good friend of mine um, pointed out to me, like, was it the Ritz Carlton, right? Sure. Ladies yep. and gentlemen, serving ladies and gentlemen. Absolutely, that's their phrase. One, 
applying those sort of principles to any consumer facing or even B2B business like ours is crucial. Services, everything. Totally. Wow. Yeah. And you're in the services business and product business, but mainly services. Um, This is awesome. What great advice. Um, So Robbie, share with our audience where they can find you, connect with you, learn about your product services, et cetera. Sure. So uh, hushconcerts.com is our um, is our main website. And from there, you can learn how to rent headphones or help uh, have us help you throw an event or put on an event of any kind. Or um, if you're in the conference and corporate meeting space, that's where you jump into our silent conference brand. And then, of course, if you're trying to uh, to do a, a drive in um, Hush FM is there to help. That's cool. I love it. Well, dude, thanks so much for coming on. It's going to be fun to watch your growth, especially over the next year as things get opened back up. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional Contender Cast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the Contender Cast, connect with us at contendercast.com. This is Brian Benson reminding you that every winner started as a contender.